Today we're going to look at the widest angle, how our most fundamental need is God himself, to connect with him in order to deal with the world. And so we're in the book of Job today, and we're going to notice two things. First, we're going to notice that suffering exposes us. It exposes what we really trust in. And second, we see what God offers us when we're exposed. So just two points today, a lot of sub-points. Two points, suffering exposes what we trust in and what God offers us when we're exposed. So first, suffering exposes us. The first two chapters of Job set the stage for all the rest of the book. They take us actually backstage and they give us a glimpse into a realm that we don't see very often. It's into the throne room of God himself where he's holding court. Satan, the accuser, is there and God asks him, as Satan has been traveling throughout the world, if he's considered God's servant Job, if he's considered, chapter 1, verse 8, that there's no one like him, one who is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil, to which Satan basically responds by saying, is it any wonder? You've blessed him beyond belief. You protect him. Why shouldn't he be on your side? But God, that's as deep as it goes. Take away all of that. And verse 11, Job will surely curse you to your face. In other words, the accuser is arguing that Job's goodness is conditioned from the outside, doesn't come from the inside that Job is good because his world is good, but God, make his world bad, and he'll respond badly. Make his world bad, and he will be bad. Sounds a little bit like the psychological school of behaviorism, right? That Job's been conditioned to be good by God, that he loves God because of all the good stimuli that God has given him, and so God says to the accuser, okay, you can take everything away from him, but don't touch him personally. Satan does so, and Job loses everything. In one day, he's wiped out financially, totally ruined. All of his children are killed in a horrible tragedy. Job is racked with grief, tears his clothes, shaves his head, and then he worships. He says, chapter 1, verse 21, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Next thing we learn, next chapter, is that God points this out to the accuser who says, yeah, okay, but he still has his health. Take that away from him, and he will surely curse you to your face. God allows this as well, and Job is covered with painful sores from the top of his head to the soles of his feet, and the only relief that he can get from them is by scratching at them, a little piece of broken pottery. At which point his wife comes to him, not to comfort him, but she comes to channel the voice of the accuser to him. She says to Job in chapter 2, verse 9, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. Three of his friends then show up. They also want to help they start a conversation, and they just push an unbiblical agenda. They try to get Job to buy into this ungodly worldview, and they try hard to sell him on this, and this goes on for chapter after chapter after chapter. And the end of chapter 2 leaves you with understanding this is Job's experience of living in his world. Financially devastated, bereaved of the children he loved, physical health is destroyed, 
He's lost the peace and stability of his marriage, and his friends are just going to keep making this burden worse. He's dealing with real suffering, with things that moderns couldn't. It would cause all of us just to collapse. And as you watch and listen, as people come near to him in, their su- in his suffering, their brush with suffering exposes what they trust in. So first, you see his wife. Her counsel to him is, just get it over with. Curse God and die. To which Job responds by saying, verse 10, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? Now, you have to be careful here because Job is not being insulting. Foolish here is not a put down. That's how we would hear, that's how we would receive it. But you can't take our meaning of the word and import it back into his culture. We have to understand the worldview that shapes what that world meant to them. In Job's world, being a fool is to refuse God's way of seeing the world. And so Psalm 14, verse 1 says, puts it this way, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. So to be fool, a fool in Job's cultural context is to say that the world runs on its own. It has no overarching purpose. It has no direction because there's no purposer. There's no God. That's how a fool thinks. So when Job says to his wife, you speak as one of the foolish women, he's saying you're speaking as an unbeliever, as an atheist. You're speaking out of an unbelieving atheistic worldview. Or as Dr. Smick, who's a professor of Old Testament languages and literature, put it in his commentary, to curse God is essentially a way of denying that he is God. It's a way of saying there's nobody behind the wheel of the universe, nobody driving. And so in effect, Job's wife is saying to her husband, there's no point to going on like this. You've lost everything, you, including your health. There's no way to know if you'll get better. It's all so pointless. <laughs> You'd be better off just to be done with it all. When she's faced with suffering, what comes out of her is that she's tempted to say there is no cosmic order in this world that makes any sense. So stop pretending that a relationship with God makes a bit of difference. Because Job, obviously, it doesn't pretty harsh, but I think she says out loud what many of us think, how many of us live. Think about the times when you've suffered. Aren't you tempted to turn to something else other than God? I know I am. Something that'll dull the pain or at least distract me from it or something that'll make it go away. And I I know the psalmists I know that they let their pain and suffering drive them to engage with God, to talk with him, to allow him to comfort them. And Job's wife makes me ask, do I do that? Or do I live pretending that he doesn't exist? Do I live pretending that he's not involved in some way, and then I go off and find something else to turn to instead? Let me just take a trivial example. How many of us have been praying for rain this summer? We've been under a drought restriction in Montgomery County now for the last couple of weeks. That's a very mild form of suffering, but it's real suffering. It's experiencing a broken world. Then you ask yourself, well, how, how have we responded to that? Do we just accept it? 
Or do we pray for mercy, for God's mercy, since he's the one who's told us that he causes his reign to fall on the just and the unjust alike? Now, just because he does that and we should pray for for that doesn't mean we don't conserve water. It doesn't mean that we uh, don't change the way that we live on this planet so that we don't damage the environment. But it raises the question, do we pray? Do we believe that ultimately God rules the world? Or do we functionally believe that global warming rules the world? Is a personal being who loves you most responsible for what happens to you here day to day? Or is what happens to you simply the product of impersonal forces that once set in motion, stay in motion, and now control your life? See, how you respond to suffering shows what you rely on to live in this world. It exposes what rules you functionally. Even trivial suffering does that. Shows whether or not you live with an active awareness that there is someone behind the wheel of the universe or whether you live as if it's all just running itself. Job's wife tells him, you have an incurable disease that's pointless. You've suffered enough. Just bring your misery to an end because there's no point in going on like this. I think his wife would fit in really well with the modern secular world. Our world says that there is no point, period, much less point in suffering. All of life is meaningless, apart from whatever meaning you can make for yourself. We're simply here how, by random chance events, that without purpose, without intention, generated these complex groupings of molecules. Some of these groupings are now alive, and they, the groupings, you and me, they have the ability to reflect upon the world and on themselves and come to the conclusion that there's no purpose to being alive, that it's all pointless. I think you can argue with the modern world. I think you can ask the question, well, where then did the idea of things having a point come from? If there is no purpose inherent in the universe, why do these animated accidents, these people, spend so much time consumed (laughs) with having a purpose. Why do you and I care so much that our lives have something meaningful about them if there is no such thing as meaning in the first place? The evolutionary answer goes something like this. Well, it's a holdover. Human beings who felt deeply that there had to be a point, a purpose, meaning to the universe, they survived better than others. I think that still begs the question, though. Where did that idea come from? if it's not part of the larger world. See, I can think about things that I encounter in the larger world. I can look out my window in my office and I can see a tree and I can think about leaves. I can think about leaves because they're in my world. But why should it ever occur to me to ask, is it meaningful to think about leaves or is that a waste of time? Why would I think to ask a question about meaning if if meaning is not part of the world? How would that idea ever enter into my mind? You follow these questions long enough and you realize there are a lot of faith assumptions, a lot of unproven beliefs behind the thinking that evolution adequately accounts for why human beings are the way that we are. But even if we set aside those questions for the moment, 
we just take it at face value, that we think meaning and purpose, having a point in to life, we think that's important because it comes from our genetics. It's hardwired in us. Even if we assume that, why then do we still care deeply about meaning now that we've deconstructed it? Now that we supposedly know there is no point, why does that drive for meaning still exist? Why does it still matter to people, not just one or two? Why does it matter to humanity in general that we spend our lives doing something worthwhile? Why does that still matter to those who believe that when you die, you die and that's it? Why not just be satisfied with a dead-end job that doesn't accomplish a whole lot? If, think about it this way. If the stars are all going to burn out at some point and the universe grows cold and dark, why is it such a big deal what I do from 8 in the morning to 6 at night? Why do we feel that that should have some purpose and value? Or, why do we want to matter so much to someone else? To be special, to be important, if nothing matters at all. Why do we say that love is important? That our love for someone else matters, that it's not just a feeling that's conditioned by genetic makeup. Why do we say that our love is real? That it's important, that it's meaningful? Or from the other side, why is it so important to us that we are loved? That we receive love from someone else who we value? Why is that important if love is simply an electrochemical response? Why does it matter so much to us when our love is not returned? When we ourselves are rejected, when we're taken for granted? See, philosophically, you can tell yourself that there is no point to this world but you can't live that way. Eight billion people worldwide live every day in small ways and big ways as if their lives matter. Every atheist does things every day that they think are worthwhile and important. I'd say that's a good thing. But they didn't get to that conclusion from their starting point that there is no God. How did they get there? They're borrowing from another worldview. They're borrowing from God and his worldview. Now, does that prove there's a God? No, it doesn't prove that. It proves that atheism doesn't explain how and why people live, or at least not nearly as well as it claims it does. Does that mean that a biblical worldview is easy to get on board with and that it doesn't have any difficulties? <laughs> of course not. Job's wife clearly thinks it has some difficulties. Read the scripture and you will struggle with it. But if you have two explanations for something, and one of those explanations does not account for all the data, and that explanation actually has to borrow from the other worldview in order to live life, doesn't it make sense to at least consider that maybe the one that is true is the one that accounts for more and that doesn't have to borrow from the other one? Job's wife responds to suffering with the modernist approach. There is no God. It's all pointless. His friends, however, have a different response. They respond with the religious approach. And so these three friends will take turns through the majority of the book trying to convince Job that he has brought all of this down on himself. There are nuances between each of the three, but the same essential message comes through. This is just a brief portion of that message from his friend Zophar. 
I'm starting in chapter 11, verse 10, if you want to look there real quick in your scripture. I'm going to read from the NIV because it's a little easier uh, to see the point. Zophar says, If God comes along and confines you in prison and convenes a court, who can oppose him? Surely he recognizes deceivers. And when he sees evil, does he not take note? Yet, if you devote your heart to him and stretch out your hands to him, if you put away the sin that is in your hand and now allow no evil to dwell in your tent, then, free of fault, you'll lift up your face. You'll stand firm and without fear. You will surely forget your trouble, recalling it only as water's gone by. All right, let's unpack that. What's so far saying? He's saying there is a God who's in charge. A God who always punishes sin and wrongdoing. He convenes a court that no one can oppose. He judges. And so, so far as logic goes, if you're suffering bad things, then the conclusion's pretty simple. He's judged you. Why did he judge you? Because you've done something wrong. In other words, you are the cause of your own hardships. But guess what, Zophar said? It, it doesn't have to stay that way. Figure out what you did wrong, put away the sin that is in your hand, and all will be well. You'll forget your trouble, barely able to remember it. In other words, your fate is in your hands. Do bad things, and bad things will happen to you. God will see to it. But if you repent, if you acknowledge what you did wrong and stop doing it, in other words, if you do good now, if you handle your former bad things with now good things, then God will see that good things happen to you. This is the religious approach to the world. It's a world in which you get what you deserve. It's a moralistic understanding of the universe, and it's a moralistic understanding of how a relationship with God works. And man, it's appealing. I've lived this world. Why is it appealing? Because you're in control. You determine what happens to you. When you're suffering, what is it that you really want? You just want to make it stop. You want it to all go away. That's normal. You want to not hurt anymore. You want to stop adding pain. You want to make the existing pain go away. You want to have some control over that. Some way to take charge of a world that's out of control and religion comes in and says, I've got just the thing. Buy into my worldview. And you can keep bad things from happening to you. That is so appealing. But did you notice what that does between you and God? It shows that you're not interested in him for him. You're not interested in him for who he really is. You're not interested in a friendship with him. You're interested in trying to figure out how to get him to give you what you want. And religion promises you the key. Do the things that God likes, and he'll like you back. Do the things he doesn't like, and you will hate your life. It's a system to manipulate God to be nice to you, rather than a way of relating to him. And if that religious impulse is in you, like it is in all of us, suffering will expose it. So suffering exposes the modernist approach to life, there is no God. It exposes the religious approach, you can manipulate God. And it exposes the conflicted approach. 
the God is in charge of the world, but I don't really like how he runs his world approach. That's Job's response. We know that Job did not cause his own suffering. He's not suffering because he sinned. He's not suffering because he did anything wrong. And yet suffering does tempt him to sin, to think badly of God and of what God's doing in his life, to say that since it's not his fault that he's suffering, it has to be God's. It's, you know, he's the only other player here. So chapter 9, verse 21, Job is speaking, and he says, Although I am blameless, I have no concern for myself. I despise my own life. It's all the same. It's why I say he, God, destroys both the blameless and the wicked. When a scourge brings sudden death, he mocks the despair of the innocent. When a land falls into the hands of the wicked, he blindfolds its judges. If it's not he, then who is it? Job over and over believes God is punishing him unjustly. Punishing him for sins he did not commit. That he's blameless. But that God destroys both the blameless and the wicked. And Job's not happy with that. You just keep reading through the rest of the chapters and you discover this is not the way that Job would run the world. He actually thinks he has a better way of doing that and he really wants to argue that point with God. So chapter 13, verse 15. I will surely defend my ways to his face. Indeed, this will turn out for my deliverance, for no godless person would dare come before him. You hear the implication here, how godly Job is, godly enough to go toe-to-toe with God. Now that I've prepared my case, I know I will be vindicated. Can anyone bring charges against me? If so, I'll be silent and die. Only grant me these two things, God, and then I will not hide from you. Withdraw your hand far from me, And stop frightening me with your terrors. Then summon me, and I will answer. Or let me speak, and you reply to me. How many wrongs and sins have I committed? Show me my offense and my sin. Why do you hide your face and consider me your enemy? What's exposed there? Job's saying, it's not me, God. It's you. There is something here that's not right, and I'm ready to defend myself. I'm ready to vindicate myself, even if that means throwing God under the bus. I still remember decades ago, back when I was in college, a friend of mine told me, I keep praying and praying, asking God to change me, but he's just not doing anything. I don't feel any different, and so I'm going to keep doing the same things that I've been doing until he does something think about that and you think wow what what is my friend saying he's saying I'm doing everything I'm supposed to do I'm doing my part I'm praying but God is not doing his part which means what I care more about my spirituality my holiness than God does because at least I'm doing something and he's not now I'd like to suggest that wasn't real prayer But it was real exposure. It showed how his heart, just like mine, hates being blamed, wants to be vindicated so badly that both my friend and I will proclaim our innocence, like Job, 
even if we have to make God look bad in order to do that. Modern pointlessness, religious manipulation, God's not as good as I would be. All those things come out when we don't see God for who he really is. That's point one. Point two, what God offers us when we're exposed. Now, this is really important. At the end of the book, Job gets what he asked for. He gets an audience with God. In chapter 38, Pastor David read this earlier, God shows up and speaks to Job. And as we read in chapter 42, that encounter made all the difference in the world to Job. He says, verse 5, chapter 42, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. And something just happened there that's amazing. For 35 chapters, from chapter 3 through chapter 37, nothing got through. Job has been absolutely unmoved. But now something has shifted. I despise myself sounds harsh to our ears. Commentary notes that it can also be tr translated I reject what I said. You look up a number of translations and they'll frame it that way. I retracted my words. I take back what I said. Something has happened here that's caused Job to rethink his position. But if you read everything that God says to him, you're going to notice there that there's a glaring omission. Because God never once gives Job a reason for why he's suffering. He doesn't answer any of Job's questions. Doesn't explain to Job what he's doing or why. Doesn't even give him that glimpse backstage that we had in chapters 1 and 2. God does not supply a single logical or legal reason for why Job is suffering. That runs counter to what I think all of us, most of us expect. You listen to people talk when they suffer and you hear two prominent questions over and over and over. We ask, why me and how long? Why is this happening to me? What's the reason for this? And how much longer do I have to endure this? What can I expect? Why do we ask those questions? We think that if we just had the answers, if we just had enough information, that would make handling our suffering easier. And God doesn't do that. Why is that? He knows we're not big enough to handle the information. But that doesn't mean that he offers nothing. Because apparently what he did offer was so big that it was enough for Job, who's in the middle of more suffering than most all of us can imagine. It changes him. So what is it that God offered? Well, he offers him a different way of thinking about the world, different kinds of reasons than Job was looking for. But more importantly, he offers them in the context of a relationship. In the context of an encounter that communicates he's not Job's enemy. He actually is Job's friend. Make sure you catch what Job said. Before, he said, I heard about God. My ears had heard of you. He had knowledge of God. He had theological impressions of God. He had a way of thinking about him. Job could describe him. And yet in his most desperate moments, 
None of what he had heard was enough. What did he need? He needed an encounter with God. I had heard of you. I had distant information passed along to me about you. But now my eyes have seen you. Now I'm not getting you secondhand. I'm encountering you, having a personal interaction with you. God, you're not far off. Instead, I'm engaging with you. Or better said, God came close and was engaging with him. That's what you need when you're suffering. And yet you think, wait a minute. What does he mean, now my eyes have seen you? There's nothing to see. <laughs> verse 38, cha chapter 38, verse 1, we read it earlier. Does Job see a visible manifestation of God? No, God speaks to him out of a whirlwind, out of a storm. It's not that Job has physically seen something that just overwhelms him. It's that he's had a conversation with God. His encounter, his seeing God, is that he's no longer hearing about God. He's hearing from God. It's not impersonal information. It's a personal encounter. He's hearing truths about God that God communicates to him so that no, Job no longer thinks of God as this far-off, impersonal being, but suddenly very close. This past Wednesday, the elders met together. I was telling them how I had been anxious, how I had been worrying about a number of things. You know how that goes? A couple things happen to you that you're not expecting. There are things that you don't want and so you start thinking about the future and how that might all play out. And then you visualize the worst-case scenarios and you convince yourself those will happen. Now, how do I deal with that? And, and I'd been doing that. I was thinking that I was big enough in my world to generate outcomes that I actually wanted. And that led to a lot of struggle. I'm having thoughts intrude during the day, waking me up at night, remembering different things. And in that moment, what's happening, I'm forgetting that God is responsible for how things turn out in this world, how my life turns out, how anyone's life turns out. Now, if you were with us during prep and prayer day, you know that I taught on this a couple weeks ago, on what happens when we try to take responsibility for things that God is responsible for. I taught on it, and now here I am, I'm trapped in it, which tells you what? Knowing something, having information, even being able to communicate that information is no guarantee that you automatically live it out. It means you now know what you need to live out, but you still have to do the actual work of living it out. It still has to become something that gets worked into your life. That means that I need in that moment to be reminded of what I've forgotten and I need to have a connection with a source of spiritual power that is greater than myself. So I sat down with Scripture, and I'm really feeling like I've got to meet with God or, or nothing. I don't really have anywhere else to go. So if God doesn't meet me, I'm, I'm just going to keep walking under this cloud. And I'm choosing to read one of Paul's letters, and it was in one of those moments where you're like, this, this was written to me <laughs> 2,000 years ago. It's unpacking all of my life. And then there's this one verse that just sort of almost lifts up off the page. That was exactly what I needed to hear. Spoke right to my heart. Led me to see, oh, I, man, I'm trying to control all of these things that I can't. Redirected me back to what I do need to be doing. 
And as I'm engaging with the Lord, the anxiety starts to dissipate. In that moment, it's like God resized my world. He took back his rightful place, the one that I forgot he has, which let me take back my much smaller rightful place and then move forward. I'm still concerned about the things in my world, but I'm not fretting and I'm not worrying about them like I was. That's what you and I need over and over and over and over, an actual encounter with him. It's what Job had. It's an experience with God as God that reaffirmed how much he mattered to God. It's, it's an experience that's much more than intellectual. It's an experience that says God has not abandoned you. You need to encounter the living God and you need to hear from him. But you have to hear what is true of him. That's what we have in scripture. Do you ever notice how important scripture is to Jesus? How he's just constantly quoting it. How he uses it to think through his life, how he uses it to direct what he does, what he doesn't do, how he uses it to respond to people with their criticisms, their questions. Clearly, it's at the heart of everything that he is, but you think, why is that? Because clearly he has these mystical spiritual experiences. You think if anyone didn't need to rely on Scripture, you would think that would be the Son of God, right? Just sort of, you know, hear from God directly. But when you read Jesus' life, you realize that he knew Scripture better than any of us do. So why was it so important to him? Why was it so central? It's because where, it's where we hear the voice of God still speaking to us. See, the Word of God is not trapped on a page. It's communicated to you on a page, but it's not trapped there. Hebrews 4.12 tells us that the Word of God is living and active. It's what God used to create the world in Genesis 1. It's still how God uses to transform his people now. Isaiah 55 gives us this really wonderful metaphor. God says, when my word goes out, it turns prickly briars, thorn bushes, into beautiful myrtles. That's God's picturesque way of saying his word changes thorny people, prickly people, into beautiful human beings. Jesus knew that, believed that. Job learned that. You have to know what's true of God. We don't have time to go through chapters 38 and 41. Maybe you want to spend some time on Sabbath reading through them. If you do that, you're going to discover two things. One, God says he is in charge of literally every molecule in the universe. That he has control over everything in this world. He says that he has control over that in ways that our limited understanding just can't begin to imagine. That's one thing he says. Secondly, he says there are dangerous things that are loose in this world, things that we can't control, things we should probably stay away from, but they are things that are not outside of his control. And not only can he, but he will handle everything that is dangerous and wicked. So Job, God tells Job, one, that he's the creator, the sustainer of the natural world, and two, that he's Lord over the moral order. Now, what does that mean in terms that you and I can grasp? It means regardless of how bad our lives are, regardless of how much we suffer, how unjust life is, there is a day coming when God will use his power and his authority to judge evil in whatever form it takes, 
however it's been expressed, in every corner of the universe. And on that day, he's going to dispense justice in such a way that no one's ever going to criticize him. Think about just how amazing that's going to be. You watch us humans, and it seems like no matter how good our human justice, system, justice systems can be, not even when they work as well as they possibly can be, there's always someone somewhere who points out something that they think wasn't done as well as it could be. Either the judgment was too much, it was too harsh, or it was too little, not strong enough, or it left this person out or didn't address that concern. There's always someone who criticizes something, except on the last day. When God judges, no one's going to say to him, well, that's all well and good for those people, but you've left something out over here. No one's going to say that to him. You will not say, Job will not say, God, what you did was not good enough, <laughs> not for what I went through. You didn't give me justice. You still owe me. There is not going to be a single accusation of injustice that will make its way into eternity. No one's going to say that. No one's going to walk away grumbling that it wasn't fair. Because God will do what no human being can do. He will completely deal with every instance of evil in whatever form it takes, wherever it's taken place, so that you get justice that will satisfy you and so that evil will never touch you again. Job needed to learn both of those things because he needed to understand he was not big enough to deal with a very complicated universe and he didn't have the power to dispense justice. Which only leaves one question unanswered at the end of the book and that is how how God can be friends, how he can come close to someone who doubted him, to someone who doubted his goodness. How can he come close to someone who is willing to vindicate himself at God's expense? And the answer to that is because there's a better Job coming, a better Job who needed to come because that better Job's friends were in trouble. You and I were in trouble. We got ourselves into trouble with how we treated God, just like Job's friends got themselves into trouble with God. In chapter 42, verse 7, God turns to one of Job's friends, Eliphaz, and says, my anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you've not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now therefore, take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you. For I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. And we're told in verse 9 that the friends did what God told them to do, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. Job's friends were in danger of God's wrath, and Job prayed for them that God would accept a sacrifice in their place, a burnt offering, something that would absorb his anger that burned against them so that the friends did not have to absorb his anger. That was okay for a time, but it was only a placeholder. As Hebrews 10, 4 tells us, 
the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. Animal blood cannot absorb God's wrath against human sin. That sacrifice by Job's friends was a placeholder, like all the other Old Testament sacrifices were. It was a promise that God would forgive, that he would be patient until the better Job came, until Jesus came. The one who was even more blameless than Job, and yet who suffered far more than Job ever did. Jesus would lose all of his wealth, gave up the riches that he had in glory. He would live with far more pressure from people than Job ever did. A life where people constantly tempted him to turn away from God, to turn away from God's ways. Satan would attack and wound Jesus far more than he did Job. Satan would go further because he would not spare Christ's life. He would take it from him, and God allowed him to do all of that. And God did not stay close, however, to Christ. He abandoned him, forsook him on the cross so that Jesus faced the burning anger of God alone. Not for anything he did. He was blameless, but as a substitute for his people. And he did that because his blood could absorb the anger that you and I deserve. He was the sacrifice that would turn aside God's anger so that we could be friends with him, so that he will never abandon you regardless of whatever it is that you go through.